Welcome to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Learning from others is a first step to developing good decision-making skills in the outdoors. Emma Walker's book, Dead Reckoning, focuses on lessons from her and others' experiences. We'll be right back to hear from Emma. Emma Walker is with us to talk about her new book, Dead Reckoning. Emma is joining us via Zoom from Idaho. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself and your uh, connection with Alaska. Great, yeah. So my name's Emma, and I am a writer. I live in Boise now, but I went to graduate school at Alaska Pacific University. I did the Master of Science in Outdoor and Environmental Ed, or MSOEE program, as we affectionately called it. Um, so I am a writer now, um, but before that, I worked in a bunch of different capacities in the outdoor industry. So I've worked as a raft guide, as a camp counselor. Um, I did some avalanche education. So I've also worked as a retail cashier at REI. So truly like any, any sort of um, capacity in the outdoor industry, I've dabbled at least a little bit. <laughs> Tell us about your time in Alaska. Yeah. Besides going to school, what, what were you doing up here? Yeah, you know, I mostly... I mostly went to school, I swear, but I took a little bit longer to finish the program so I could spend a little bit of time uh, skiing. That was my primary interest, but I also, some friends convinced me to do a little sea kayaking. So I, I finally, I've always been a little afraid of the water. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little more about that later, but I, uh, I really started to see the appeal. So I spent a lot of time outside when I was in graduate school, which I think most people don't get to say. So I'm really lucky in that regard. <laughs> And full disclosure to the listeners, I was one of Emma's professors. So I'm glad to hear that she was going outside, but she was also studying. So. Oh, I swear. Yes, <laughs> lots of studying. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Paul. <laughs> so we have this book coming out uh, in June uh, called Dead Reckoning. We're recording this in February. Uh, so tell us a bit about the book and what motivated you to write it. Yeah. So, yeah, the book is called Dead Reckoning, uh, subtitle Learning from Accidents in the Outdoors. and you know, in the outdoor industry, we have this really long tradition of analyzing accidents and close calls to understand what happened and why it happened and hopefully how we can prevent that from happening again. So there's this, this really long and rich tradition. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult topic to talk about because it's really vulnerable and often, unfortunately, it's really sad. Um, and, you know, that's always been something that's really interested me is understanding how and why accidents happen. I think I've got a little a little touch of maybe Wednesday Adams in me. I tend to be a little bit morbid maybe, um, but, but I think it's really fascinating and important. Um, and you know, the more time I spent reading about accidents, the more I started to feel like it wasn't very accessible. So I would often read an accident report in you know, a really niche climbing magazine, for example, or um, the American Alpine Club does their wonderful accidents in North American climbing, used to be accidents in North American mountaineering. Um, and it's really interesting stuff, and it's, but it's very clinical. So it's really often written in these terms that, you know, if you're already a climber and you have some experience, it's great. You can glean a lot from it. But if you're brand new, um, I can see where it might be really scary and intimidating, and you wouldn't necessarily get as much out of it if you didn't understand all that was going on. Um, so I wasn't able to find any resources that 
made it possible for someone who was really early stage in their career as an outdoorist. So I wrote this book because I wanted to make it possible for folks who are maybe more dabblers like me. You know, I'm, I'm not a super strong climber and I really like to ski, but I'm not going to be dropping into any couloirs anytime soon. So um, it's really for people who are interested in dabbling in a bunch of different activities or just kind of want to have some basic skills to keep themselves safe in a huge variety of situations. Um, there, that sounds like a lot, but <laughs> I tried oh, to no, keep it great. as simple as possible. I enjoyed the book. You bring a lot of yourself into the book. And let's go back to that comment about being a little bit morbid and how that affected your, because you write about that a lot in the book, uh, your sort of view of bad things. Yeah. Your interest in that. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's actually been, it's become easier to talk about that a bit more as this, you know, I'm, true crime has become such a it's sort of a buzzword now, but it's become really popular. You know, there's so many true crime podcasts and Netflix shows out there. Um, and there was a point when that started happening that I, you know, I saw this sort of like true crime related stuff around me. And I was like, oh, other people think this stuff is really interesting too. And it, you know, it's sort of that, that classic, like, it's like a train wreck and you can't look away or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it is kind of like that for me. You know, I, I, I of course don't want bad things to happen to people, but I've always, since I was a little kid, been really wanted to know and understand all of the details. And I often find myself like fixating on, on the details. And so, but, you know, years of good therapy has helped a little bit with that, but, um, but I also, you know, it's, it also helps me stay safe, I think, and make more rational decisions. You know, later in the book, I, I mentioned that there's a, an incident where someone's partner um, is, is crushed by a calving block of ice in Blackstone Bay, which you, Paul, wrote about in, in your book. Um, and I, you know, this woman is like out in the wilderness with a partner and, um, and he's, you know, obviously in great distress. And the thought of having that happen to me is really scary. But for me, it's even scarier to think about that happening to someone I love, like a friend or my husband. And, and that's often what I come back to when I'm thinking of making a risky decision or could I just get a little bit closer for a better picture or whatever it is that's that sort of uh that morbidness in me a little bit is kind of what I come back to and um reminds me that you know no no picture and no shortcut is is worth the potential of having to see that happen to someone I care about yeah sometimes the act of imagination is a, can be a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us about the, the title, Dead Reckoning. Yeah. Um, well, okay. First of all, I have to admit a big part of it is it makes a good title. It just sounds cool. So that was, uh, that was part of it for me, I'll admit. Um, but, but there is more to it than that, really. So, you know, Dead Reckoning is this navigational technique, right? And it's, it's the very most basic. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't, your phone is dead and you don't have your GPS or a map or anything like that. And so Dead Reckoning is this technique that you can use and, um, that is sort of a metaphor as, as far as I'm concerned in this book. So, you know, we have these tools that help us to, to navigate in situations that we hope will never end up in, right? So it's a skill that helps you orient in conditions you hope you never encounter. So, you know, traditionally dead reckoning is often used in a, like in a blizzard, right? You can't see anything around you. And you figure if you walk in a specific direction for a certain amount of time, you'll get to a landmark, you know, and so, 
I'm, I'm thinking of dead reckoning in this case as another tool in your toolbox. So I think understanding the risks that you're taking, knowing what might happen um, is an important skill to have. And it's, you know, we think of, we often think of these sort of quote unquote hard skills versus soft skills, right? And so um, I think of this as almost sort of a hard skill, right? It's like knowing what your risk is and knowing what to do in various situations is, is really important, right? So, um, and sometimes there is a little bit of that, that, uh, that morbid that comes in, right? Is like thinking about um, something awful that could potentially happen to you. And so, you know, I think about in, in your interview with Deb Iango, Deb likens what your brain does in a scary situation that's unexpected to a Google search, right? So the idea behind this book is to give your brain some more data to grab onto when you're, it's going through that frantic Google search. Um, so, so it's another dead reckoning is another tool to have in your toolbox when you're in the wilderness. I like that because many times we're in, in situations and we don't know where it's going to. You know, we might know like in the where we're at physically, but we don't know what the bear is going to do or what the weather is going to do. And so you are drawing, it is like dead reckoning in that sense that you're might draw on from these past experiences. So that's great. Yeah, and I think there's also, you know, to that point, I think that unpredictability is part of the beauty of outdoor adventures, right? I mean, that's part of why we do it. If we knew exactly what the outcome was gonna be every time, it would be pretty boring. So I, you know, part of it is this idea that you can, you can take data as it comes to you or you take a situation as it's coming to you and you've got some techniques to deal with whatever comes next. and. Um, there's a certain joy, I think, in solving a problem or getting yourself out of a situation. You know, there, of course, are situations you never want to find yourself in, but I think that unpredictability is such an important piece of the adventure as well. Talk, Emma, a bit about, so we talked about you've been in Alaska, you've been, you were raised in Colorado, uh, you're in Idaho now, you spend a lot of time in the mountains and in wild places. Uh, you've done some other work that uh, involves accident analysis. You want to talk about that? And especially in the avalanche world. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. So I, um, I've edited a couple of volumes of, it's called The Snowy Torrents, and it's a publication put out by the American Avalanche Association. And um, it's not a regular publication like Accidents in North American Climbing, which is put out every year consistently. So The Snowy Torrents is um, the timing is a bit more inconsistent, but it also goes into a lot of depth. So I've edited two volumes of that publication now, which means that I've read many hundreds of accident reports. I, I don't think I could even put a number on it necessarily, <laughs> hundreds of accident reports. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's pretty tough to read. It, it gets really heavy to read accident reports, especially um, you know, if I've got a big chunk of time, we've got a deadline coming up or something, and it really is, uh, starts to feel kind of repetitive. You know, it's really heavy. These, each of those incidents that I'm reading about was the worst day of somebody's entire life um, or, or the last day of their life, you know? So it's pretty heavy. And yet it all starts to sort of blur together in a sense that, um, I started feeling like I was reading the same accident report over and over and over again. And you start to pick out these patterns, right? Of um, maybe not having avalanche rescue equipment with you or 
not looking at the forecast or understanding the risk of going out on a particular day or um, going out with people that you've never met before and failing to communicate before you head out onto the slope. So, you know, that's the reason a publication like the Snowy Torrance exists, right, is to give people a sense of the, the patterns. And the authors have done a wonderful job of teasing out what a lot of those patterns are and, and even putting call outs in the margins so you can even just scan the text and see, start to pick up on this stuff. Um, and I think what has continued to frustrate isn't the right word because I don't, um, I think it's really just a lack of understanding, but it's tough to read the same types of accidents. And, you know, we, I read the same sorts of accidents in the years between 1986 and 1996. And then there's in the next volume from 96 to 2006, it's a lot of the same stuff that's happening. And so, you know, it got me wondering, like, what, how do we get through to people, right? Like, how do, how do people start to understand what the risk is? And I, I'm sorry to tell you, Paul, that I don't have an answer. Of course, I really wish I did. Um, and this book is not the answer. It's, I like to think that it's helping the cause, right? But I, I know that, you know, there's no one resource that's gonna change anything. And that's especially heavy to think about right now as we're recording this in the midst of a really brutal season as far as avalanche fatalities. Yeah. So, we've had a couple of nice then. and morbid. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been very a very tragic year. This is, uh, Paul Tordak, we're uh, you're listening to the Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. We have Emma Walker, the author of the forthcoming book, Dead Reckoning, with us. Emma, why don't you go ahead and read us a section um, talking about avalanches? Sure. Um, I'm going to read a section from um, a, the chapter that I wrote on avalanches, and it uh, takes place in Hatcher Pass, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with. The last chunk of snow falls into place and suddenly it's dark in my little cave. My breath catches. I'm acutely aware of just how alone I am under the snow. All good down there? I hear a muffled voice. It sounds miles away. Yup, I holler back at the top of my lungs. My radio spurts and sputters and crackles to life. Of course, snow is a great insulator. They can't hear me no matter how loudly I yell. All good in there? Someone's asking me this time on the radio. All set, I chirp, doing my best not to sound like the sort of person who might panic at the thought of being buried in a snow cave, which as far as I know is everyone. I'm bundled in a puffy down jacket, stuffed in a sleeping bag and lying on an insulated pad. So I'm much warmer than say, someone who moments before had been zipping along on their skis might be. It would actually be pretty cozy if only my lizard brain would quiet down. Now it's time for the hard part. The only way to get out of here is to wait. Great. And that was part of a training exercise, correct? It was, yeah. So every couple of years, a bunch of search and rescue groups get together um, and do a big drill. It's a lot more complex than a real life situation would be, which is great because then folks and their dogs are prepared to search for um, subjects in, in a real life situation. So um, I volunteered or maybe was voluntold to be a test subject for this. So I was buried in a snow cave and then um, a really cute duck toller came and found me. So don't worry, that story that I just read ends happily with a, a cute pink nose coming to find me and playing that's a, war. That's a, that's a, a classic search and rescue dog. Why don't you go ahead and sort of give us a brief overview of the book, the contents yeah. and the chapters and so forth. Yeah, so um, unlike most 
accident analysis that's out there, which focuses on one particular activity or area. This book focuses on a bunch of different activities and areas. So each chapter is uh, a sort of narrative nonfiction, um, and it involves a, a personal story of mine. And sometimes it's a close call, and sometimes it's an accident. Um, and it's interspersed with sort of historical accident data from that area. So I've got chapters on um, sea kayaking in Alaska, on hiking in bear country, um, on avalanches, obviously, um, on boating through the desert and dealing with heat, um, tropical areas like Hawaii. So I, I really have tried to cover a huge range of regions and activities, um, again, so that people who are just sort of average athletes or folks who just enjoy being outside like me, but aren't necessarily super ultralight crushers um, can glean something from it. So each chapter is a story um, sort of pocketed with other mini stories. And then at the end of each chapter, I've distilled the big takeaways that I could glean into a couple of bullet points, um, which I've tried to make as digestible as possible. So really you can take everything that you've learned um, in, in that story and see some sort of almost a checklist for yourself to stay safe in that situation. Yeah, my favorite chapter about the bounded waters. And was it called the Wendigo? Yeah, the, the Wendigo is like this mythical creature that, um, you know, if you, I, there's a bunch of different tellings of it, but it's, um, you know, I, I have not personally encountered a Wendigo, but, um, but that's a, a really common um, legend up there. And, and so that was sort of on my mind when I did this trip that I wrote about to the Boundary Waters. <laughs> Yeah, and I like the idea of Wendigo being a metaphor for your fear and uh, perseverance and overcoming fear. Um, you don't give into the Wendigo, right? You don't yeah, give exactly. In, you don't give into your fear. Yeah. I think um, I I'm scared a lot when I'm outside. You know, if I'm pushing my limits, I'm I'm often really scared. You know, same like with climbing. You know, I've I've had people ask me, you know, with rock climbing or mountaineering, like, aren't you afraid of heights? Like, isn't aren't you scared? Like, yeah, of course I am. Like. Um, I think, and that's, you know, again, part of that is that, that a little bit of fear keeps me safe, but truly if I never did anything that I was afraid of, I would pretty much just like sit in my living room and watch TV. Right. So I think, um, some of it is you, you have to be a little, you know, push past your fear a little bit. Sometimes, um, I think a lot of it is just knowing your own personal limits, but sometimes, you know, there's a certain point where if you have a really bad gut feeling that maybe that's your sign, maybe you don't need to go any further today. Um, but a lot of the time pushing past that fear, I think is really important to have these experiences that turn out to be really meaningful. What advice do you have for someone to do that initial first push? If you're nervous about something, whether it's a simple ski at night or a climb or boating, what's the first step to get away from the television and deal with it, do that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And it's one that I try to always be able to answer for myself because I, I want to, I never want to stop doing new things, right? Like I always want to be a beginner at something. So um, that's a good question for me to try to answer right now. Um, you know, I think the advice I would have for someone who's really nervous to take that first step is that, um, it really is just the first step that you have to take. We can scale almost anything up, right? So I think there's, um, there's this idea that if you're not already an expert, um, you know, any little thing that could go wrong, you could stub your toe and end up, you know, freezing to death on a hike. But 
the truth is most of the time those little accidents or little mishaps are really just that right like most of the time even if i get kind of cold or forget my cliff bar or don't bring enough water like i'm gonna show up back to my car a little cold or a little hungry or a little thirsty but i'm not gonna die right so I think some of it is just if you're if you start small and start to scale up and really um, learn a little bit at a time and try not to bite off more than you can chew every time or try not to bite off a lot more than you can chew most of the time um, that trial and error is actually really important so i think i would say um, don't be too hard on yourself and know that you probably are going to make some mistakes and you're probably going to be fine so i think setting up some of those safety nets, bringing your 10 essentials with you and telling someone where you're going. And um, I won't give away all the secrets or anything that I've written in the book, but I think for the most part, um, try a little of this and a little of that and see what works and what doesn't and know that the vast majority of the time you're going to turn out just fine. Going back to this idea of taking that first step and developing experience, uh, judgment, developing a skill, like becoming better at something uh, in your readings and your research and writing any advice for people to how to do that I get that question a lot like how do I go out and become better at something in the outdoors and not have an accident yeah well the second part is the million dollar question right <laughs> I guess um but I read your book I mean let's start yeah. with reading your book <laughs> yeah of course please read, read my book please buy and read my book um, but I think also, this isn't a very satisfying answer, so I apologize in advance, but you really just have to do it. I think that's true of almost any skill. And, you know, I get that question about outdoor pursuits and also about writing really frequently, right? People are like, I really want to be a writer. I really want to, you know, write a book or sell uh, an article or, or get good at skiing. And the truth is this, you know, I wish there was this like magical thing. If you try this, if you do it this many times, if you hit 10,000 hours, but truly what it is, is just practice. And I think that's true of, I can't think of a skill that, that wouldn't get better with practice. Right. And I think, you know, there of course are things that, that make that happen faster. Right. Like I, I like to push myself, especially in outdoor pursuits to go out with people who are stronger and faster than me. And I think that has helped me improve significantly. Same with, you know, with writing, I like to have someone who I trust as an editor or who asks really difficult questions, read my writing. Um, and, and so I think there's some of that, you know, going out with people who are, aren't going to push you too far, but who will push your limits a little, that helps a lot, but there is no substitute for experience. Um, and that's true. You know, there are so many things that like, I've had so many close calls, some of which I wrote about in this book that were kind of embarrassing, honestly, like, um, you know, in, in one chapter, I, I wrote about being on a backpacking trip, like an overnight backpacking trip in Hawaii. And that's a region where I have almost no experience. You know, this is my, my first backcountry experience in that sort of um, biome. And um, I, I read the forecast and it didn't look like it was going to rain in the nearest town. And so I, you know, I, I didn't bring a lot of the stuff I definitely should have. And then when it shockingly rained the entire night and the rivers came up and I had to do like a kind of scary swim. Um, I found myself, you know, realizing that this, this small river must drain like a huge watershed. And it was kind of embarrassing, right? I'm like sitting here, I can see where I'm, where I'm going to be picked up. And I'm sitting with my husband, a fellow outdoor professional, um, 
I mean, I literally have a master's degree in like figuring out how to do this stuff. Right. And so, um, sitting there and getting ready to like etch my mom's phone number into the sand so that someone can call her and tell her I'm going to be late for my pickup is like, it was pretty embarrassing to be honest, but you know what? I will never make that mistake again. Right. Like I definitely will know to ask for local knowledge and, um, check the forecast for like a much larger area. And, you know, there, there are so many things that I did wrong in that sort of embarrassing situation, but I'm really lucky that, that it didn't go a lot worse. And I think also some of it is like, even if I had read that story before I went out, I think there are certain things that we just have to experience for ourselves to really, you know, ingrain them in our, in our neural pathways. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I probably shouldn't use the expression neural pathways, but, but you know what I mean? So it's, Your memory, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, some of it, I think too, is just, you got to go out and experience some stuff and you have to screw up a few times to really, to really drive it home. I think. That's great. Now uh, you talk a bit about um, the difference between sort of Alaska and the lower 48 a little bit. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed about the book was, as from Alaska perspective, as I now know a lot more about hiking in Hawaii, um, climbing, you know, the, the, the 14, 14ers in Colorado, uh, uh, about uh, you know, hiking in the Grand Canyon, um, canoeing in the Boundary Waters. A lot of these places I've been, but um, I, I, I like, it's interesting, like from your perspective, like when you reflect on the differences between Alaska and the lower 48, uh, what would you tell someone coming up here? Like, like a new person, what's the difference? If I'm a, yeah. I'm a Joe Pro hiker in Colorado and I've done the 14,000 footers. What would you tell them? What advice would you give them when they're, I'm gonna go to Alaska and go hiking? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, you know, it's sort of a, it sounds a little cheesy, but everything really is a lot bigger in Alaska, bigger bears, bigger moose. So that's a, you know, there's a bigger terrain, right? So that's a huge piece of it. I think also um, the thing that so struck me when I first moved to Alaska is just how remote everything is. So, you know, sort of infrastructure that's in place in a lot of places in the lower 48, you know, and there are very few places near front country trailheads in Colorado where I don't have cell service. There's a lot more of those kinds of places in Alaska, right? So I think a certain amount of self-sufficiency is really crucial in Alaska in a way that is important in a lot of other places, but could truly mean life or death in Alaska. Um, it's likely gonna take somebody a lot longer to get to you if you have a mishap um, at a lot of Alaskan trails and, and off trail than it is in a lot of places in the lower 48. And you know, having these vast swaths of wilderness um, and Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Having these um, vast swaths of wilderness really makes it so that you're um, a little bit, a little bit more self-sufficiency is really required. Great. We'll come back to, to that topic in a minute. Uh, but first, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak, one of Alaska Public Media. And we're with Emma Walker, the author of the forthcoming book, Dead Record. We'll be right back. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. 
Welcome back. This is Outdoor Explorer and Alaska Public Media. We're talking to Emma Walker, uh, the author of the uh, book Dead Reckoning, and I'm your host, Paul Torlett. Emma, we talked a little bit about coming to Alaska, and I'll talk to give us some advice as Alaskans if we go to Lower 48. Yeah. What should we? What's different? What's um, we talked about cell phone coverage? Yeah, that's obvious. But what else? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think um, I will say very often when I was living in Alaska, I, I would go somewhere else and I felt a, a certain a certain cockiness, right? Like there's no wilder wilderness than Alaska, which is in a lot of ways true. Um, but, you know, I think there's a certain humility that's really required to go into a different region than the one you're used to traveling in. And I think the best advice I could give anyone who's going somewhere, you know, anywhere different than where you normally recreate is to ask locals, ask people who go there a lot, um, what their recommendations are, right? So I think there's there's no way to understand a landscape better than living in it or spending a lot of time there. It's that same concept, right, of that there's no substitute for a lot of practice. And so I think whether that means, you know, picking up a local guidebook or um, getting on a forum on the internet or calling a friend of a friend, um, I think it's really important to try to glean some of that local knowledge. And there's some stuff you can get from people from a good conversation that you just can't get anywhere else. So that's probably my best advice for leaving Alaska. Right. Now, one of my uh, stories is that uh, I was on the Green River, which you write about, and as to put in the ranger goes, now the party before you, uh, one guy went to use the river the toilet one night and he looked up and there's a mountain lion right above him. I just about turned around and left right then. <laughs> and large cats that you know, prowl around at night predated on people, scared the living daylights out of me. My friends from Colorado were like, oh, whatever, no big deal. They come to Alaska, they are terrified of bears. And so talk about that perceived risk a little bit. And, yeah, a, little well, bit, and a little also a little bit about what we talk about subjective risks um, or an objective risk, a little about where, how animals fall in that. Cause we have a couple chapters on bears and mountain lions. So talk about that. Right. Well, I'll start by saying that I'm with you, Paul, I'm way more afraid of giant cats than I am of bears, but um, yeah, it's a really interesting question because um, well, I'll start by talking a little bit about subjective versus objective hazards. Um, so, you know, objective hazards are things that we really can't, control. So things like, um, well, I, I'll try to keep it a little simpler. So things like the weather, right? Like um, rockfall, maybe things that we really can't control except, except by where we put ourselves in relation to them, right? So we can choose not to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but we can't control the weather. We can't control if there's rockfall. Um, then we've got our subjective hazards. And that is one that um, I'll use the use avalanches as an example, um, because it's talked about, you know, the avalanche world is really smart in the way it approaches this. Um, subjective hazards in that case are what we often think of as, um, we call them heuristic traps. So um, subjective hazards are sort of how people interact with the landscape in a way that um, you do have a lot more control over, right? So it's choosing to go out on a high danger day, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, we've got risks that we can't control, risks that we can control. And then I think the question about animals is really, is very different. Um, and it, it's kind of tough to define where animals fall on that scale of, um, from stuff we can control to stuff we can't, right? Because we, 
we understand a lot, you know, scientifically about how animals behave and about how our behavior might affect our interactions with them, um, which maybe puts them closer to the objective thing, but they're also living creatures, right? And not to anthropomorphize them too much, but you know, they've got individual personalities and preferences sometimes, right? So there's an, there's that piece of unpredictability too, that um, makes it a little bit tougher. Um, really what it comes down to is that, you know, like you said, Paul, the, um, some of it is what you're more or less familiar with, right? So I'm, you know, I, where I live in Idaho, we do have grizzlies up a little farther north of where I live, but near my home in Boise, we mostly just have black bears. And um, I, I'm not really afraid of black bears. You know, I certainly don't want to have a run in with a, with a sow and cubs or anything like that. But for the most part, that's not my biggest fear when I'm outside near my home. Um, but I'm, I think mountain lions are really scary, right? So I think some of it is what we're familiar with and sort of what we understand um, and that we're sort of used to dealing with or maybe have encountered before. Um, but I think truly what it comes down to is that the bottom line is you can limit your exposure and that reduces your risk load overall, but you can never fully eliminate that exposure when you choose to recreate outside. And, you know, like I said earlier, that's, I think, part of the part of the beauty of it. Um, and, you know, but certainly we can't ever fully get rid of it. Um, certainly not by reading my book and certainly not even with a lot of practice. Um, there's always going to be some element of that. And then you talk about the Swiss cheese sort of model and then this year of COVID, we've heard a lot about that from our public health professionals. Talk about it in the relationship to the outdoors and risk. Okay. Great. So yeah, the Swiss cheese model is this idea that's often applied to sort of high risk um, endeavors. So, you know, you often hear about it. You've been hearing about it a lot in, in terms of COVID and you hear about it, you know, with like aviation and like the medical field, like high, high risk stuff. So, um, you know, in the outdoor world, um, we're basically dealing with, uh, it's different systems, right? But it's still systems that we have. So if you'll picture, a uh, a block of Swiss cheese um, or a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese um, and we line them all up next to each other and imagine that each slice is a different system. So, you know, one slice of cheese is bringing the 10 essentials. One slice of cheese is knowing how to read your map and compass. And the next slice might be telling someone where you're going for the day, leaving a note behind or texting your mom. Um, so we've got a bunch of slices, right? And so they're all different systems or different things that we do in order to keep ourselves from having an accident. And the idea with the Swiss cheese is that each layer of cheese ideally stops um, some of the risk, you know, the hazards from getting through to us. We're on the other end of the Swiss cheese. So if we have enough slices, the hazards can't all get through. And they're, you know, they're blocked by where the holes are in the Swiss cheese. A podcast isn't necessarily the best place for me to explain <laughs> all of this. So I hope you're all visualizing, you know, the holes in Swiss cheese. But basically, um, where we get into trouble is when holes start to line up. So first of all, the more systems we have, the more slices of Swiss cheese we have between the hazard and ourselves, um, the less likely it is that those hazards are going to get through to us, right? So if I'm if I'm ultra careful and I have all my supplies with me and I'm traveling with someone I trust and I've told my mom where I'm going and I um, you know, I've done all of these things, then I'm a lot less likely to wind up um, ending up, you know, by myself 
in a place that I'm not familiar with without my supplies with a broken ankle. So um, where we end up getting into trouble is when those holes line up. So the fewer systems we have um, or the, the more mistakes we make, that's when we start to find that we, the hazards get through to us. <laughs> Great. What, like when you think about one of the things you write in the book is how small mistakes add up. Um, and so what in your reading and research are some of those common mistakes? And I sort of think of that as a filter. I think as knowledge is one of those Swiss cheese filters, right? Absolutely. And so of knowing what are some of these common mistakes that add up might help people. So what are some of them? Yeah, yeah. Those mistakes can start before you even leave the house. So, um, so think of your trip as being, you know, while you're still cozy at home. Um, and so it can be as simple as not checking the forecast, whether it's the avalanche forecast or the weather for the day. Um, sometimes these things don't even seem like a mistake at the time, but in hindsight, um, it may very well seem like a big mistake, right? So choosing to go ultra light for a trip and not packing an extra day of food or stepping in a stream and you know your boots get wet and you choose not to stop and take off your socks and switch them or, or you haven't brought another pair of socks. Um, very often I think of these mistakes as things that um, they're small by themselves, like you said, and, and then they start to add up, right? So I think that the preparation is the biggest one, I think that really can get us into trouble because if you know what you're gonna be dealing with, um, then often you're able to bring the right supplies. Um, so I think the big thing to remember is each time you make a decision, even if it doesn't seem big, think about how it could affect those future decisions, right? So um, I've done this so many times, uh, you know, I'm on a hike, even if it's a, a pretty warm summer day and I step in a stream and my feet get really wet or one of my feet gets really wet. Um, most of the time, it, you know, it's hot out. So I choose to just keep going, right? But I know that the weather is gonna be warm. I know that this trail is a loop and so I'm gonna end up back at my car um, the more I know about what's ahead of me, the more prepared I am to, to not have that be a problem. Now, if there's a freak snowstorm that I didn't know about and I didn't have an extra pair of socks and ended up with wet feet um, benighted and not able to get back to my car, keeping going is going to seem like a pretty big mistake. So I think, you know, knowing how your this decision might play into the next couple of decisions and how they might sort of branch out and... Um, sort of have a ripple effect is, I think, a really important part of all of this. This is Outdoor Explorer uh, on Alaskan Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We have Emma Walker. Emma, why don't you read another section from your book? This sure. might be a good time for that. And why don't you right. tell us what, what you're going to read about? Yeah, so I'm going to read another short section from this chapter on avalanches. It's, you know, really been on my mind since we're um, recording this in February and will still be avalanche season this spring. So I'm gonna read another short section about sort of how I came to know a lot about avalanche accidents. I can tell you about every avalanche fatality that happened between the years 1986 and 2006. It's not exactly a winsome party trick, but there it is. It didn't come easily. It took editing two volumes of The Snowy Torrents, a collection of avalanche accident narratives and analysis published somewhat irregularly by the American Avalanche Association. 
Now I've spent hundreds of hours reading, not skimming, but reading in exacting, sometimes excruciating detail about the worst days of people's lives. I've read about a lot of accidents, but not nearly as many as Spencer Logan, lead avalanche scientist at the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. In addition to issuing public avalanche forecasts, the CAIC keeps an avalanche accident database for the entire United States, which Spencer has maintained since 2007. I first met him when we worked together on the Snowy Torrance volume that catalogs accidents between 1996 and 2004, which he co-authored. As I worked on the book you're reading now, I asked him what patterns he picked out in all those years of investigating and writing about accidents. I figured if anyone could tell me a magic spell for avoiding an avalanche accident, it was Spencer. It's a big question because there are patterns we can see in hindsight, where we can see the information people missed or the mistakes they made, he explained. Those hindsight patterns are easy to pick out, underestimating the avalanche potential, overestimating the ability to escape, not being aware of where you are. But humans, Spencer points out, are great at justifying our decisions. And so the patterns are tougher to pick out from the points of view of those involved. Victims may not feel like they're missing information, he says. That's when we start seeing the human factors, like being overly committed to a goal or feeling social pressure to take risks you otherwise might not. That's why having several perspectives is important, he told me. When we're looking back on accidents with a lot of information or our own preconceptions, we can see patterns. When we're looking at what people were experiencing and trying to understand that, we can see somewhat different patterns. Combining those perspectives can add to our understanding of how and why things went wrong. So no magic spell. Avoiding an accident takes significant ongoing effort. That's it. When we talk about, talking about that passage and, and avalanches in Alaska and the lower 48, you know, what, well, first of all, what are some of the differences between if I'm going to go skiing in the lower 48? What am I um, thinking about when I go down there, start snowpacking terrain? Yeah. I think, you know, I hesitate to answer a question in a way that sort of defines a snowpack, right? Like I could go into a little bit of the, you know, the maritime versus continental snowpack, but I really more importantly than that, I would encourage people to check the forecast every single time they go out. And, and in fact, to monitor the forecast every day. So I think, especially as climate change starts to you know, really rear its ugly head in a lot of different places, we start to see unusual and interesting patterns in various snowpacks. So I think um, the first thing I would say is to check that, check that forecast every single day. I think also there is, um, there's a bit of, you know, I, I always encourage people to get a quality avalanche education, because I think, especially in places like Alaska, where, you know, you've got sort of, especially in South Central, you've got your a couple of really popular areas where a lot of people go, but there are huge swaths, obviously, of Alaska where there is no forecast. And so having some avalanche education can really help you understand what you're looking at. Um, but I'm, I'm probably not that much fun to ski with because I always insist on digging a pit. And unfortunately, I can often point out where an accident has happened. So um, I think a lot of it is just continuing to take in data um, and, and make sure that you understand what you're skiing or what you're about to ski. That's interesting. It occurs to me that you've read a lot about accidents. You seem to be, um, you're sort of self-described a little bit, focused on the morbid a little bit. But how is it, after writing this book and in the process of writing book, how has it affected your risk tolerance and your you know, willingness to take friends and family out? 
Yeah, you know, I think I, that's a really good question. And I think I, um, it would be pretty weird if I, if it didn't affect me at all, right? I think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty empathetic person. And so it's tough for me not to visualize what those folks went through and, and what potentially, you know, their families went through after the fact. And so that sticks with me a lot. Um, it certainly affects my own decision-making and that I, you know, when I'm deciding if I, you know, if I'm really willing to climb very much farther above this last piece, or um, if I really want to keep going, even though my partner has slowed down and is um, having, you know, acute mountain sickness signs. Um, I often, what it comes down to for me is thinking about like, do I want someone to have to tell my parents that something has happened to me? Um, and so again, you know, there's a little bit of that morbid, but yeah, it's definitely affected my risk tolerance. I think um, what it's done more than that really is it's forced me to always kind of play out all the potential logical conclusions. So, um, you know, I try to be rational, right? I try not to let my fear get the better of me, but it certainly means that I am thinking through consequences and being really careful about my decision-making. And there's almost no scenario where I wouldn't um, err on the side of caution. Um, I think you can have a lot of fun while still being really safe. You know, I'm not, I'm not refusing to ever leave the trail or, or only hiking stuff that I could do in my sleep. Right. I, I'd like to continue pushing myself, but you know, there's, the truth is almost always the mountain or the river or whatever it is, is still going to be there. Right. So um, the question I always ask myself is, will I still be here? And that has definitely affected the way I make decisions. And when I've got folks with me who are less experienced, even more so. You have a great section in the book about climbing Rainier and the talking about mountaineering, just been walking uphill with a big pack on, which I love. And, uh, <laughs> but also the reward of that. Talk about the rewards of doing that. Yeah. And you didn't even make it to the summit. I won't blow it all, but you know, I, I think it's talk about the reward of a trip that maybe didn't go as quite as planned. Yeah. Um, that particular trip definitely did not go as planned. Um, my husband and a friend and I planned to, um, to do Rainier car to car. So um, we did a short bivy, but didn't spend the night and man, that was a long day. It was a long 20 hours. Right. And, um, it was hard. And, and, uh, my friend ended up having some AMS symptoms. And so we decided not to, you know, we stopped about 1500 feet short of the summit, right at the top of the disappointment cleaver. And, you know, I thought I would be really disappointed, but, uh, it almost sounds overblown, but the sunrise at the top of the DC is one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen in my life. And it was really, just such an incredible experience to be in this incredible place with two people I love and be having this experience, right? Like how often do you, are you sort of forced to stop in the middle of something really cool and be like, I'm having this experience right now. Like it really, I was so present in that moment. Um, and that's such a rare gift, I think, is to get to be really, really present. And that for me was so the reward of that was absolutely where I, you know, I probably wouldn't have said this as I was like trudging back down the snowfield from Camp Muir and my feet were wet and I was so tired. I was, you know, once I got to the car, I was feeling a lot better, but man, that moment really did make the, the trudging slowly uphill with a heavy pack feel 
completely worthwhile and is often, you know, that's what, that's what gets me off the couch, right? Is that those moments of like being completely present that there's nowhere else you'd rather be. Yeah. And I think that comes out in your book, even though you're focused on these tragedies or near misses, it almost always there's also some bit of joy and, um, or some you know, reward of being in the outdoors also, which comes across, which is really nice. Do you have, as you talk about mentors in the outdoors, I want to touch on that uh, pretty quick. Um, you know, how does one find a mentor? How, what's, a, what's a good mentor to you? Ooh. Um, man, mentorship is so important. And like so many other things, a really good mentor is something you're really lucky to have. So I have been incredibly lucky with my mentors, um, many of whom are uh, still in Alaska and sort of orbiting in the APU world. Um, how to find a good mentor. You know, I think a lot of it really is um, finding someone who, whether it's, you know, at the local rock gym or um, through a friend of a friend, so much of it is finding someone who you admire, who seems to have some skills and being pretty forthright about asking for that mentorship, right? I think there's, um, yeah, I think as now I'm I've started to get to this point in my life where um, I am not only a mentee, but also I am in a place where people are seeking mentorship from me. And the folks that I'm really excited to mentor are folks who are really proactive about it, right? Who are, who ask really good questions. I think that's probably the best thing you can do is ask a lot of questions. And I think um, so often there's, especially for young women, there's this feeling of like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't want to ask too many questions. I don't want to um, I don't want to bother somebody or inconvenience them, but that's the only way you learn, right? Is by asking questions and there's so much you get from people that you might not if, if you don't think to ask them. So I think, um, man, when you find that person, latch onto them, get those answers you're looking for. Um, I think that is a, I think also, you know, then once you get to that point where you've been doing it for a while, starting to, um, once you've got some education starting to take other folks under your wing and sort of paying it forward I think that cycle of mentorship is really important and a really cool thing this is uh, outdoor explorer on alaska public media i'm your host paul tordak we're with emma walker whose new book dead reckoning uh, is coming out shortly uh, we're uh, getting toward the end of the show uh, we've had a couple um shows now on this um subject a lot over the time. We had, as you mentioned, Deb Angle talk about um, sort of how the brain works emergency. We've also had a show recently about emotional intelligence, which is about communication, people skills. Uh, and when you're talking about a mentor, I think that comes out also. Uh, talk about those skills, those sort of what we call soft skills um, and emotional, that emotional part of um, thinking through accidents and learning from them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think thinking through and learning from accidents really does, like you said, it, you know, it is a skill and it does require the biggest thing probably is empathy, right? So I think reading about another person's experience and imagining what they went through, um, what that would have felt like truly, you know, it sounds so basic, but often when I'm reading about an accident, I really am sort of engaging with my senses, right? I'm thinking about what that person was seeing and hearing and feeling and um, 
it it's, feels bad, right? Like it, that empathy in that case feels awful because you're thinking, you know, you're imagining yourself in this terrible experience. Um, and I think that's an important skill, not, not just to scare you, but to, um, to understand sort of what the potential consequences are to, you know, to keep you from finding yourself in a situation like that. And also to keep yourself from doing this, you know, there's a sort of um, that expression, Monday morning quarterback, right? It's really easy to look back at other people's mistakes and say, oh, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. I'd never do this. And, um, but, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book is because I've done a lot of, I made a lot of the same mistakes that the people I wrote about who didn't get as lucky as I did made. And so I think that empathy is really what keeps, keeps me pretty honest, right? About remembering, um, it is just by the skin of my teeth that I didn't end up in some of those really tragic scenarios. So that's a really important piece of it, I think. Um, and then also, I think that communication piece um, is another, it maybe is one of the most important skills you can have when you're in the wilderness with other people is um, there's, again, we, we talk about this a lot in the avalanche world. There's a lot of this like um, thinking about following up another person because they seem like more of an expert or seem like they know more than you um, and, and being afraid to speak up. And that's um, why I'll only, there's a, a small handful of people that I'll backcountry ski with, right? Is people I'm really comfortable communicating with and telling that I, that I don't feel comfortable or um, that communication piece and picking up on your partner's nonverbal cues and um, debriefing the day at the end of the day, even though it, you know, the first couple of times you do it, it seems kind of dorky and stilted, but debriefing is such an important thing to do, right? To, to see, understand what happened and what could have happened, I think is a really crucial skill. That's really important, that, that reflection piece. Uh, I liked at one point, I don't know if it was, uh, who it was in your book, talks about the idea of learning, like looking at past experiences, even if it went perfectly fine and asking the question of why did it go well or why didn't it go well? And, and just adding that to your base of knowledge. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, that, uh, did I do it right or did I just get lucky? I think it's right. an important question to ask yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it'll be May when this airs and we'll be in the boating season. You sound like you have a quite the uh, conflicted um, relationship with water. <laughs> you <laughs> want to talk about, I, I, and my question is mountains versus oceans. I like asking this question, which is, which is more challenging and not just for you, it might be yeah. an easy answer, but in general, I, uh, what's your experience and, and, and maybe some advice for people about to venture out on the ocean or on rivers? Yeah. You know, I think we've talked quite a bit about how it comes down to what you're more familiar with. And no matter where you grew up, you as a human are more familiar with land than you are with ocean, right? We're these like bipedal creatures who are used to walking around on land. So um, there is a, the water is just a whole, I mean, it literally is just a whole different world. And so I think sort of objectively, there is more difficulty, right? In that we are, our bodies are meant to walk around and, and there's only so long you can swim in really cold water physiologically. So that's my easy answer, I guess. But I think, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the water pieces, it is so different. And I think there's um, a tendency to forget, especially as you get more comfortable, just how powerful that force is. Um, you know, I'm thinking, I guess I'm thinking specifically about rivers. Um, that's where most of my water experience comes in. And um, there's, there's a reason, you know, 
that, that swimming upstream is, is a cliche for doing something really yeah. difficult, right? Like it's, that's impossible to do. Um, so I think having a, having a healthy respect um, and maybe a little bit of fear of water is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think, you know, depending on where you are recreating and what, you know, what sort of boat you're using, um, there are a lot of resources out there to help you understand how to stay safe. I think, um, again, heading out with folks who have some experience and who are willing to mentor you. And, you know, even if I just take my, a couple of friends rafting on sort of the daily stretch near my house in Boise, I'm still going to give them sort of a, a guide talk, uh, if you will, about what to do if they fall out of the boat. So again, might seem kind of dorky, might make me a little bit less fun to go out with. Um, but I think for the most part, it, it's, it's so important to have those really frank talks with people, right? So going with someone that knows what they're doing um, and making sure you are headed out with a reputable guide if you're, if you're going with a guide. Um, in my opinion, there's no reason to ever not be wearing a, a life jacket or a PFD uh, if you're on the water. Um, might very well save your life. So that would be my, those are kind of my little things for heading out on the water, which I, which I think is objectively a much scarier place than land. No mountain lions, I guess, but. <laughs> and then I have friends who think land is where you get hurt at and water is where you're safe. <laughs> I need to go out with them, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll have to go kayaking next time you come up in Alaska. This has been Outdoor Explorer. I've had Emma Walker with uh, us and talking about her book called Dead Reckoning. Thank you very much for joining us, Emma. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. This was great. And we look forward to seeing you next time in Alaska. Thanks. Me too. Thanks for listening and to my guest, Emma Walker, for joining us. Her book, Dead Reckoning, is available early June. Finally, thanks to our producer, Airport. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, be safe and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.